welcome everybody to a new edition of the Art Business Podcast. Uh, my guest today is quite pretty well known in the art world, I would say, in uh, particularly in the UK, uh, London-based, um, Marina Tangi, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, her, her, her work later later into the podcast. But welcome, Marina, and thank you very much for giving up your some of your busy time this morning. It's a total pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, and and so I'm going to start by asking, um, you know, some 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 usual questions. Um, but maybe you could just talk a little bit about, you know, do you have a favourite city, and and if so, why? Um, I think London is my favourite city. Um, it's very much home, and it has, you know, it has everything that I love, which is on a daily basis you can meet new people people from all walks of life all things in very different ways about life you have a very vibrant cultural scene um and, and your contemporary art scene is also equally as vibrant equally as challenging um i remember feeling so proud when i went to the vfa in december and and then showcasing you know how much the cultural scene in london is doing so i think it is london it is home it's now also, you know, where my kids were born, so it's very much home. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you say. I guess if I was being interviewed, I <laughs> I probably I prob I don't know, I'd probably find it quite I think London is a is a kind of taken in some ways, but I I think it's wonderful just to hear your the way you talk about London. Um I, I don't know about you, but I find it quite hard to put my finger on exactly what it is and why people want to come here. Because when you grow up in the place, you kind of see the bad as well as the good. You know, it's, whereas when you visit from a, from abroad, for example, um, you you see it through very exotic eyes and want to go to Camden Market and you know look at statues of Amy Winehouse, etc. <laughs> There is a very strong resilience in the city. I actually just over the Christmas period, um, I watched a documentary. I don't know if you know, but Amsterdam was the first mega city and then it was London and then it was New York. Um, but London mm. very much, um, you know, re reopened itself and became so modern. Um, thanks, if I can say thanks to the Great Fire, because it had to rebuild itself and it had to re-question itself. And in fact, it wasn't that modern. Amsterdam was completely leading the way at the time. Um, and then again, sadly, after World War II and, and, and being bombed, um, it was able to have a stronger diversity of people, stronger diversity of buildings, because again, it had to step up and rebuild. I think I'm, I'm attached to the idea of resilience and I'm attached to the fact that it has been a strong diversity of people who's rebuilt this city. It hasn't been a type of people. Um, and I think it probably informed again um, the cultural scene and the fact that like you don't just have a type of person in that cultural scene. So it's um, it's a fascinating city and it is one of the oldest um, city in the world um, in that sense. So I think there's a lot to say on why London is, is a fascinating place to be in. Yeah, and I'm funnily enough, I'm taking my students to those two extremes I'm taking them to the city um, and the, the city as you know in London has two meanings it means the ancient Roman city Londinium but it, it has come to mean the financial district so I'm taking them to the new Bloomberg or the recent Bloomberg building by Norman Foster which is like something like 90% sustainability tested yeah. and um, they have a they have an ancient Roman temple uh, 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 underneath in the in the archaeology which is an immersive experience but they also support contemporary art uh, so that's uh, that's a kind of good example of that antiquity to contemporary. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Maureen. Um, a non-urban location, do you have any kind of favourite place you like to move out of the city to? Um, so I think that's, that is the hard part. So I grew up in a tiny island off the west coast of France, so the total opposite of London. It's called Ile de Ré, Faces La Rochelle. Um, you have to cross to mainland to go to high school. It's very remote. So I would probably say that this is where I would escape to because obviously my granny is still there, my family is still there, um, and I want my kids again to kind of get exposed to where I grew up. Um, it's very beautiful. The sea is everywhere. It's incredibly flat, so you just cycle through everything. Um, and and yes, and I, I think I'm, you know, having grown up by the seaside, I think the place I would most escape to is being by the sea at all times of the year um, and, and feeling like visually just so resourced from it. You're very lucky and of course um, of course you, you're now in a in a in an island but much bigger in a very different place. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic. 
um and um and, and buildings do you do you have a do you if i say you know can you think of a building that you really love for whatever reason can you pick on I one buildings is um uh, is actually where lies my biggest contradiction in life um and my because so I, I live in a Georgian home. Our office is by Bonsfield Station and I live in a Georgian home for the Wellies collection. Um, I adore the aesthetics of the Georgian and Victorian homes, but I adore the social values of the Britannist building, but I don't like the aesthetic of it. So I feel stuck in architecture because um, I adore everything that is about equity and you know, giving access to the same opportunities. And, and obviously the Britannist movement was really trying to equalize everything, but I'm just not seduced by the aesthetics. So I feel stuck in the middle in architecture because what I like visually um, doesn't actually embrace the values I hold. Um, so it's where I feel completely stuck. Um, <laughs> I haven't succeeded to, to kind of solve it yet. I, I, I actually really like brutalist ar architecture, not necessarily, you know, it's, it's because it's a challenging aesthetic, obviously. Uh, but I think that there are some brutalist buildings. My my one that I really love, and you probably know the name of the architect, Dennis Lasden. He did the. Um, I really like the National Theatre for some reason, and I, there, there's a great story about Dennis Lasden. When the when the building opened, there was a press conference within what is now the National. What was the national? What is the National Theatre? Um, one of the one of the architectural journalists asked him, "Where's where's the decoration?" Because you know it's all. That beautiful, yes. it always reminds me of ancient Rome where they used wooden shuttering to pour their concrete and they plastered over it because you weren't meant to see the, the grain of the wood, obviously. Romans liked to, everything had to be smooth and marble-like. Um, but he deliberately sort of leaves that out so you get the lovely rough surfaces of the wood, which I find, I think is amazing. But he, he turned to this critic and said, Madam, you are the decoration, <laughs> which you probably couldn't get away with today, but it's a, it's a really funny quote. Yes, well, I think on the on the Madame probably I would not use a gender, but I would say maybe he was putting a stage for people, and I think that would make sense that the people are exactly. the activation of the building. Um, but I, yeah, I, you know what? I found it interesting. I'm just really not attracted to it. But I would I would be able to study it. I would be able to read about it. Um, and I just it's really a, a case of just not being attracted to it visually. Absolutely, yeah. No, that's that's that. And and music. Are you do. You, are you into music at all? Well, my second song is called Vivaldi, um, ah. so I think that probably answers uh, your and question. And the, the first one's Atlas, is that the right? The first one's Atlas, the second is Vivaldi. I mean, poor yeah. kids, they have they have a lot to answer uh, <clears throat> over the coming years. Um, but therefore, that probably answers on yep. um, our favourite music by the parents. Um, and I think it's, it's a philosophy also. Vivaldi was actually a priest and he... Um, he very much believed in the power of music being healing. Um, and the Four Seasons is very much accepting that there are highs and lows. There's, there's you know, life is a constant flux, which I which I very much relate to, um, and hence his name. Yeah, that's brilliant. And uh, I think Vivaldi is one of those composers that everyone, you know, it's very accessible, but very beautiful. Yeah. You know, and that that brings me to the next question, which is which has similar, you know, we can all think of artists that we a bit like buildings that that we really in, can engage with, but we don't necessarily like. So do, this is a really difficult one, I guess, for people working in the art world. But if you had to, if someone put a gun against your head and said, right, you could take one work of art to a desert island, what, what would it be, Maureen? Um, I have an answer for this is the although actually I could not take it to a random island because it's about to it's <laughs> disintegrate so it yeah. wouldn't be possible a, a virtual it's, island <laughs> yeah. it's, um, it's the Wrath of the Medusa by Jericho um, oh, wow. because that's the first ever work of art I saw um, and and I think it really for me um, brings all the reasons why I'm in the sector um, there's there's a political and social vision to the Wrath of the Medusa, as you know, um, or maybe for people who don't know, um, it was specifically capturing a shipwreck, but the ones who were poor and were well on the boat were left behind, the rich were able to survive. So it was touching upon um, something that was a social problem at the time. Secondly, he had, um, he had been going to the morgue and looking at corpse to really make sure that it was you know, technically um, uh, the closest possible to reality, but there was really a lot of innovation in terms of how he did it. Um, 
and and the reason why the voice so like you, you can't just pass it you have to look at it emotionally and going back to Vivaldi it's a very emotional painting so although it's describing a social fact although it's political it's incredibly realistic that he's been able to convey a lot of emotion to it which I think all those components are very hard and finally there's an element of romance um that I really like because I think that's the romantic movement um there's so many letters apparently that when he was uh, painting it, he was getting so excited, and I think it just says something quite beautiful on that, the joy, the sheer joy of having done that painting. But the reason it would not be possible to carry it is because he used a um, a series of pigments from the industry of the time. That means, and it's very romantic, that this painting, this painting over time is becoming darker, and ultimately this painting will disappear. Um, but given the fact that it's a shipwreck, I kind of love it, um, which is the reason I couldn't be able to transport it to everywhere. But I, that is definitely the painting that changed a lot of things for me. Yeah, and it, it obviously also has tremendous contemporary re uh, resonances. I think several I think. contemporary artists have used that as a basis for a, a contemporary yeah. view of that. And of course, the boat people situation uh, yeah. in the UK. Exactly. Uh, well, and in the and in the Mediterranean, all over the world, in fact. So it, it, it it's it incredibly reminds... contemporary. But I think for me, like all the uh, all the works of the past, um, you know, that made it to today and shaped today, are very contemporary. Like this is a great example that uh, is incredibly relevant, and it's always been relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I think your as as I understand it, your first work in the art world was Outsiders Gallery for in, in London in 2012? Yes, yeah, so my first official um, job role. Before this, I studied at Warwick University and I was helping out on the stand at the pad, Andrew Lamberty, which had a design gallery. So I was doing the research, but I was running the stands in New York, um, London and Paris, which is the reason why I was able to get um, Gary Manager at the Outsiders, because actually through that I was able to meet my first collectors, I was able to network, so it is how I landed the job. Um, Steve Lazardis is a fascinating character for the ones who don't know. He discovered Banksy um, and many um, uh, contemporary artists and street artists such as J.R. Uh, Connor Harrington and many others that we would know today. Um, he is also one of the first, I think, or one of the few council estate boy who was able to build uh, that level of galleries. Um, and I think that, in, I think I feel incredibly lucky to have had that as a first school because therefore he wasn't that bothered about obeying to all the rules of the art world. And obviously, as you know, we came on to becoming disruptors later. So I think being exposed to someone who questions the rules and, and questions the status quo and questions who is part of the sector um, at 21 was frankly quite extraordinary because it's the first it's the first time you get exposed to the sector at that stage and um, and he was able to tell me that while you must understand rules it's also good to question whether they're in the first place and whether they're necessary or not or whether um, whether it's good to change them. Yeah I mean I, I'm I obviously since I started working at, at the at the Institute, at Sotheby's Institute, and, and really had to immerse myself in contemporary art world, I had students who were really excited by street art. I had an alumna who worked for Steve Lazaridis when he was in Fitzrovia. And then yeah. I think I think he then moved down to a really posh building, possibly Georgian, down in St. James, was it? Yeah, so that's a different company many moons oh. later and more recently. Yeah, um, you're talking about uh, outside, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When I was there, uh, he yep. had um, the Gary and Raven place, Lazarus itself, yes. the Outsiders um, on Greek Street in Soho, and yep. then the studios in Wapping, and then was doing a lot of, um, yep. and that also informed a lot of our brand partnership department, but he was doing, and our public art department actually too, because um, he was taking over the old Vic, he was um, like where now 180 The Strand is, um, also he was taking over the vinyl factory and doing loads of experiences, so he understood the world of entertainment, we had the singer Massive Attack that is also an artist uh, called 3D, um, he was very much um, at the forefront of collaboration within the arts uh, partnerships and, and really expanding the definition of the arts and bringing new audiences to it. I think a lot of people don't realise that actually. They they just see him and they think of Banksy. And uh, I remember Sotheby's when they had their controversial commercial gallery S2, um, which has closed down, I think, during COVID. But do you remember Steve Lazaridis actually curated a, a show for them with Banksy? 
Well, I think it's interesting that we, again, for us, as, as a talent agency, we've, we now do public art, so it's not illegal. I think yeah. three to half, we see a lot of it will be illegal to just kind of say the difference. Um, but it does say a lot that we have parked street art for a long time. I mean, um, this is um, this is art being made by people who are not from privileged background. Um, the fact that they've been parked for a long time does inform of the relationship that we have with the arts at large. Um, I think there's plenty to say on, on the reason why it's not discussed in the way it should be discussed. Um, and, and as we will be studying it, we'll probably realize still the many problems that the sector is experiencing. So it's look, it's it's still an undergoing conversation in the sector to how we make it more inclusive. How do we welcome larger audiences? How do we partner better? Um, and I don't think this is solved yet. I agree, I agree entirely. Um, and um, talking about like public street art do you know do you know the street art museum in amsterdam have you ever been out to yes. that Muma, yes well, actually, sama sama oh, sorry no i thought yeah. you were yeah. Muma. Yeah, I do but actually no Muma is also coming to london and and we we're yep. helping that so i thought that was also the the connection because they had done a, a show also banksy in amsterdam that that's right a lot of people talking to yeah one of my colleagues actually melanie pasha always we we visit amsterdam uh, when we go to TFAF, a <laughs> very different place, and um, one of my colleagues usually goes to um, to uh, it's what is it? It's Mom Moma. Moma. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, yeah, and 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 that it's quite interesting the street art museum I understand because it's like curated and um, the artists are commissioned, and so we always have this very interesting ethical argument about does that reduce the kind of um, frisson of the street art, the, the knowledge that is actually allowed to be painted. Uh, it's, it's an interesting discussion that we have when, I, when we go there. Yeah. It's interesting, for me, street art should be just on the streets. Um, it has like its context, it's so political that yeah. its context is the street. Um, but then I, I guess I'm quite comfortable in thinking of different types of art and different types of environments. And I feel, I don't, you don't have to transpose at all times the art in different environments. Like you don't always have to have the art in the white cube. Like if the art's biggest impact is to be on the street, then just leave it on the streets. That is that is where the conversation actually should be. So I am, um, yeah, I, I would pre I prefer it on the streets. I think that's where it belongs to. And I Definitely. think that's where it drives the very needed conversation that it wants to drive. Yeah, I remember the first Banksy I saw, I didn't even know who he was. It when the South Bank in 2000 still, no, yeah, 2000 when Tate uh, opened in the in the former, you know, power station, uh, that whole South Bank, you, I don't know whether you'd remember, it, it was really a no-go area after dark. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that is exactly where Banksy began to do his his works, yeah. including the goal with the balloon on Waterloo Bridge, of course. And But I, I the first one I saw uh, was under a bridge and it was the famous one with the... Um, uh, the oh, what was it? The oh yes, the city gents with their umbrellas and bowler hats in a demonstration. Yeah. It was fantastic, and I just you know, and and no one knew who this person was at that stage. And things have changed. And it's interesting in itself, and I feel it's and I think this is why I also love the the interaction in the everyday, and we will talk about that. On, and I feel for me, like again, we've tried a lot as a company to create everyday interaction with the arts, not just a special occasion, as you feel mm -hmm. like to be dressed up in a certain way and then you walk into this building but that everyday interaction that just imprint that memory um for me is quite special um and i think that this again there's a place for all types of interaction with the arts you don't just have a type of behavior you should have with it which is just holding a glass of champagne just looking at it having to look clever you can have all types of interactions you can have fun interaction political interactions everyday interactions and i think um, I, I like the fact that like, you just didn't know who he was and that was your interaction on that day. That is quite special. It's, it's yeah. a very different one than walking again in the specific building. Yeah, and it was very impressive. You know, I, I, I was certainly taking pictures of it thinking, isn't that wonderful, you know? Um, and um, the then you moved to LA. I think I, so the... I was I know I um I was 21 therefore running the gallery of the outsiders at mm -hmm. with Lazardis. I think I was probably the youngest at the time to do that. Yes. Um and um I think we did well in positioning um the gallery and press-wise as well, which meant that this investor, Steph Sabak, who was running an advertising company in Los Angeles, um, heard of us and 
you know, ask, like he said, like, I would love to have my own gallery and I would love to therefore invest in someone to build it. We became uh, co-founders and co-partners. He put the money in and built the gallery and named it after the island I come from, which is Ile de Ries. It was Dore Gallery, a uh, very different context because we were next to Beverly Hills on Melrose Avenue with a very different crowd because we opened with Demi Moore and a lot of celebrities at the time. Um, I think LA informed a lot of who I am today. You know, I was 23. I had never read, never uh, dreamt of being in Los Angeles, first of all. Um, I still have my little bicycle here, no driving license, and I read books all the time. I just, you know, I was not prepared to be living in LA at any time soon. Um, well, you but, have to have a car, really. Exactly. I, I never did, but it was like, no, that really disclosed it was challenging. Um, mm. And I feel, therefore, um, when it comes to entertainment, communication, marketing, and again, um, nurturing large audiences, LA completely reshifted my brain. And I think also somebody else that reshifted my brain and has since uh, remained um, a supporter is Michael Lovitz, who built one of the largest talent agency in the world called CAA. On the art world side, he's very known as one of the largest collector too. Um, but CAA, UTA, WME, are the three largest talent agencies in the world. WME now owns Freeze uh, for the art world. Uh, CA is now um, owned in majority by Pino, who is also a big collector in, um, in, in France. So it, it, actually the art world has always been quite tied um, to those places. But Michael has built CA at the time to give you an idea. He built the carriers of the top celebrities. He'll be behind all the adverts of Coca-Cola, Steven Spielberg, all the anything you can think of in terms of the top movies was out of CA. Um, and I think for me, it reshifted the fact that um, while I had this beautiful gallery, because it was absolutely beautiful, um, it felt that I had an empty space where a few people will come from time to time, whereas Michael had shaped culture. He had shaped the conversation we discuss, the content we see. Uh, he had inspired people at large. And all of this was driven by the brain of the creativity of the talents he had backed. And, and that just was much more the job I wanted to do. It's, it's, it, it felt much more in the pulse of, um, of contemporary culture and, and felt that I could open up new revenue streams to my talent and new audiences to my talents as well, which will be the artists in this case. Um, so I decided to leave this partnership and this glamorous lifestyle, which was very glamorous, um, and try and build the first talent agency in the art world. Um, the difference is, um, while I was very grateful that Steph invested in me, because it was a once in a lifetime opportunity, I would never have met Michael, I would never have kind of got exposed to everything I got exposed in LA. Um, I wanted to build it um, on my own to understand the economics of the model I was building. I think something I didn't like about receiving investment from the start is it felt like I there was a lot of veneer, but I wasn't sure my business model was actually working um, economically. Um, so I took on trainers and decided to be broke, but really to do it step by step. So that once we scale, when we become a larger company, I know my foundations are solid and I understand this economics and that having not had a business and economical background, it felt essential for me to comprehend that side and feel confident in it. Um, so then I could then scale. So that was when I was 25, that is almost nine years ago. Um, and yes, I mean, I'm, you know, blown away myself about everything that's happened since, I think is the answer. Um, my lucky, um, and there's been many lucky um, things that happened in, the, in why we are here today and why it was successful. Um, you would know one of them, but two entrepreneurs exited their businesses and sold it and joined me. One of them is Lee Zalo, who built one of the first fractional ownership platform in Europe. The, um, and after several years, she joined me and that was a game changer in terms of having another entrepreneur on board. Uh, Jan Matthias spent 25 years building a creative agency and actually also the MBAs, the Central Sam Martins, also sold this company and joined me. So this really helped me uh, building up the company. Of course, the corporate hires um, from Chris's, Sotheby's and Vogue, and et cetera, really helped me on the corporate side. But I would say Lisa and Yen were a game changer. Also timing, I think, you know, when we started, because we became also the first B Corp in the art world, and for anyone who doesn't know what B Corp stands for, it's the idea that while you aspire for economical growth, you also aspire to do so with social values. And it's quite strict metrics in how you do that. And we therefore published a social manifesto when we started. 
And the entire art world told us, this is madness. Like if you're slightly social or political, your business will fail within two seconds. But, you know, I was 25 um, and you have the use of thinking that you can just do what you want because that is the beauty of that age. Um, and what's interesting since is that the art world has opened up to thinking we need to be more inclusive. We actually do need to step up in terms of values. And of course, for us, like this was the foundation of what we were doing in the same way that we were also developing new sustainable materials. And that became, again, a concern of the sector many years later. So um, in the same way with the urgencies and, and everything that we discussed today, I think we've been lucky that the timing was on our side. And, and with every company that is trying to change anything, timing is really key. So for us, timing did work out and did enable us to be here today. Fantastic. And um, yeah, no, I, I I haven't seen Lise for a while, but she we used to invite her in when she was working for Feral Horses, which was this. Behind me as we speak. She is, like, yeah, I I see. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I remember them being on. Um, I think I'm right in saying that she was on the Alan Sugar Apprentice program. Yes. Yeah. Well, she, 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 like she's a super smart brain. And I think that, that's the thing on my team is that generally I, I landed so lucky, like everyone is beyond smart. Um, and and, you know, it's it's a joy every day. I mean, I get challenged every day. It's mm -hmm. I think I have chosen both a relationship because my husband is also an entrepreneur and both a team where every single day I'm being told off and I'm being challenged. But it seems that this is what clearly I like because I seem to choose it in every area of my life. But um, but it's very much a team that casts questions. You know, you can't just get by saying, I think X, it will be questioned. Um, but it's enabled us to innovate and be here today. Yeah, well, maybe you could say a little bit more, Maureen, about a, a little bit expand on what the mission of um, at the MT, presumably Maureen Tangi Art Agency. What, what, a little bit more about its mission and um, maybe, maybe some present, some current ongoing projects and and, and where the future lies. Yeah, the its mission is to represent talents, but opening up the many revenue streams and opportunities an artist currently don't have access to. So traditionally. The core relationship with the arts was with the artworks. We believe that actually an artist can do much more than artworks. And we see it today, they can do public art projects, digital projects, brand partnerships, creative collaboration, entertainment projects, you name it. You know, like they can generally influence society at large and drive it through their visual vision. And first, that was very much how can we be the person that enable all those opportunities? And on the back of that, uh, enable all those new audiences for the sector. What it also does is, as you know, it's a very unequal place to be an artist today. So it means that, like, if I think of one of my artists, Raven D. Clark, she's 27. She's behind uh, five permanent sculptures in the States in Alabama that are readdressing how we treat slavery in art history. That's like a 2.2 million contract at 27 years old. This is game changing in regards to the female empowerment she will get and, and how she can reinvest into her artistic career. Um, when you think that 97% of public art projects that you see on the street are done by men, that 3% is, and the fact that she's in that 3% is very meaningful. Um, in terms of entertainment and partnership, we did the uh, art, this kind of huge, um, by the Red Bull frescoes for the documentary of David Attenborough with Apple TV last year. And that's a really good example. Or we also kicked off the World Cup in Qatar again through sculptures and um, through video with, with another of our artists. So it's really opening up. I mean, again, that World Cup is 5 billion views. You know, it's opening up who gets to see art. And we talked about context before, but I'm a big believer in coming to different contexts with the artists. Um, and however, however you're going to use those contexts, then I want you to be inspired artistically. Um, and you know, obviously, that I have my book on this topic coming up literally early March. But my idea is that you live in a visual world and you get bombarded by imagery um, like hundreds of times every single day. And right now, it's mostly commercial imagery. There's very little time that you will have civic imagery, which will be around your role in society or I don't know, mental health or being inclusive or artistic imagery. I want more artistic imagery because of course there's tons of studies that will show you that being constantly exposed to commercial imagery is making you feel really crap. Um, we know the well-being nature of being exposed to the arts and, and how much it gives to us as human beings. Of course, we all do those jobs because we are a strong believer in that. So it's reshifting the position of the artist 
not just in a tiny niche sector like the art world, right in the heart of society. Um, and we do most of the public art that you will see on the streets of London, whether it's Crown Estate or Westminster or Camden, etc. Like, so it's very much on your way to work, when you look at your phone, on your collaborations. We want to be with you at all stages of your life through the artists um, and not just on a special occasion every few weeks, because we think that art, art being infused every single day is a much more inspiring life. Yeah, no, and that, that's absolutely fantastic mission. And I, I think all the listeners will 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 identify with that as a but but as you say, it's a very uh, you're you're unusual, you're entrepreneurial, you've disrupted in many ways. <clears throat> I think there are some other groups um who are doing similar things. Uh, I I even guess on the podcast earlier guests on the podcast like Claire Manda, who's working in a more niche, I think, you know, it's a very much a feminist um project that she leads, but she, you know, she, there's room for so I think that's the good news is the art world is 65 billion but when you look at the cultural sector is 2.5 trillion <laughs> advertising sector 400 billion video games will be the same and then again the placemaking a similar amount so you there's there's so much room and that's I think also was positive at a time where the art world is actually going through a recession and is being hit financially that there's a lot of new jobs to be creating. So it's not just going to be us. I mean, of course, we ambitious want to become a global company and want to lead that thinking, but but it, there's a room for so many people to join that movement. Are you, is your kind of business model to, to try and pair up um, corp, corporate um, sponsorship with for a project with the artist or to go, and or to go to the government and ask for money? And the answer is would you both. Um, okay. Again, it's for us, we're in the business of um, telling stories with the art of the artist and comprehending when all values align and with whom. So um, we did a brilliant project in Paris with the Eiffel Tower on the Sean Mars. It was like a biodegradable painting across the whole Sean Mars. But here had the mayor of Paris, 30 companies, the Guardian Media Group, because the Guardian had just launched at the time in 2019, their sustainable wrap and was becoming a B Corp and the Eiffel Tower. So again, I want everyone around the table. I feel art has the power to get everyone around the table. We've seen last year that it's so hard nowadays to get everyone around the table and to even get a single agreement across anything in life. So I feel art has that power to get different types of people and different types of bodies around the table. And that makes that conversation interesting as much as people will be thinking very differently. It goes back to on your first question, who was my favorite city? London is because you can be constantly meeting people who are thinking differently to you. I think art is one of the last places where actually that space can, can exist. And that's why it's important to widen that space and really make sure everyone can come around that table to contribute to it. Yeah, no, that's that all fits together really well. Um, and and um, you, you <laughs> I don't know whether you, you mind me um asking you about um you're a you you won um the third the Forbes 30 under 30 uh in 2018 you were one of the, the, the those people um so can you talk a little bit about did you did you put in for that or or did or did they approach you um so I definitely put in I'm not going to disclose that they approached me because I think in life you have to be aware that a actually, lot actually people... I think that they don't I think that you do put in for it anyway don't you yeah. you have to put yourself forward but I think it's also good for it to hear for people that they have to put themselves forward that they should just not wait um yes. um it was a magical moment because disrupting the art world is difficult as we all know and um sometimes there are attacks sometimes there are challenges sometimes there are people who don't wish you the very best is the answer um, and therefore receiving Forbes 30 or 30 was like a tap on the back to say you're on track to doing something that actually matters um, and or at least you know we whether it's about the Forbes or whether it was, it's about me doing that period Forbes felt like a tap in the back it felt like um, keep going you're on to something um, and it was a nice tap in the back um, I'm actually this year the judge for that category um, Europe culture now so it's really nice to um to be back in for loop. Um, my boyfriend at the time we were in New York because uh, we had just finished a project um, in New York. And uh, because of my name, because of the T, I was right at the end. Oh. He didn't want to tell me that the list had just been released. 
And he went very silent in a different corner of the room and swipe endlessly. And obviously as you swipe, there's less and less chances that you actually could be on it. Um, I think he was actually more stressed for me than I was uh, for myself. I think I didn't think I could have it. I think Will really wanted me to have it. Um, and so I just remember it as a really fun moment also for my relationship of how much Will felt I deserved it and was happy that I got it and, and how sweet he had uh, shielded me from telling me the list was released until he could see my name on it. That's a lovely story. Um, well, actually, another of the podcast guests who's actually an alumna of mine, Elsa Ackerson, she's now based in New York. She's an artist, but she designed, she she won uh, that award uh, for designing um, these uh, sustainable bags to carry your artwork home in it's called spongy bags <laughs> rather strange title but i think it's incredible what she's yeah, doing yeah. And it's also it's something because i'm fresh of having written that book and and i'm fresh of having written the acknowledgements there was a study by the harvard review that said that actually when it comes to the press female leaders rarely get uh, smart um, as an adjective mm -hmm. um, they, they try very hard they work very hard they have loads of enthusiasm and energy and then the guys get genius and smart and all of this, right? Um, and of course it's shifting. And I think actually it is an exciting time to see that shift happening. Um, but Forbes was that. Forbes for me was like saying, you know, the way you see the world has, you know, is valid somehow for some people. Um, and, you know, and, and because again, as and when you rarely hear it, it was nice to hear it. It was nice to hear that actually maybe there's value in what we what we are building. So it helped my confidence, I think, and it was more of a personal story with it because my confidence was boosted in thinking I could do it. Um, but I think it could have been done for something else. But I think for me that was the Forbes. That's 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 great, and and um, I think I think the main the main uh, reason that I invited you now uh, as as a guest, Marine, was was that you're about to have a book your first book published and um uh this it's if i'm right it's it's titled visual detox it's going to be yeah. published by penguin in early yeah. march um yeah. may, maybe we could start by saying where did you get the idea for that um i think this is i think it's actually so i grew up in a place again we mentioned neil Duray, where there's not a single artwork um, it's a very visually beautiful place. Um, and when I was little, and I'm sure we can all relate to that, if I felt um, sad or unhappy, I would go and sit by the sea and just let the wave quite literally absorb you, you emotionally and you will feel better. Like it just, it was one of those like really silly things, but it was very effective. And I had loads of tricks like this that were visual tricks that just made me cope and made me um, mental health wise uh, be able to navigate um, the the life I kind of um, I was in. So that was my first experience to it. I think you are discouraged a lot on thinking that visuals is decorative, it's a bit fluffy, it's a bit superficial. So I kind of parked it, um, entered the art world still through this relationship of visuals. But I, but again, and that's why we disrupted it. My relationship with it was slightly different. It, it wasn't just because I wanted to, you know. A social status or a very luxury lifestyle. I actually generally felt I needed um, the those visuals, the stories of the artists, this involvement in the visual world. It was a much more essential and necessary relationship with it um, than what the market was telling me I should have as a relationship, and and hence the company we built. So I think it kept it kept going in my brain that that essential relationship with visuals and the happiness it gave me, the way. You, the approach to life it gave me um, had been something that now on a day-to-day -day basis as a business was inspiring others and, and was enabling others to kind of connect with visuals better. Also, it's really interesting, but 65% of us are visual learners. We're not verbal learners. We connect with visuals better. They get to our brain much faster than words. Um, and yet there's very little visual education at school. Um, we we don't really talk about it, um, but we're shaped by it. If, I, if you see three times an advert, you're very likely to buy that product or act on that insecurity or act on that behavior. So it clearly is something that like a fish in the water, you're kind of not realizing that water is here, but you actually swim in it every single day. Um, until it became so obvious that um, I kept being told something has to be written about visual thinking, visual critical thinking in the visual world we live in. Um, again, that goes back to 
insecurities, but I just thought, am I an author? Can I actually publish a book and write something that is uh, of that standard that I would want the idea to be carried in? Um, so I, before I approach um, uh, publishing houses, I wrote the book because I was so scared that I was not oh, really? capable of doing it. Yes, normally you should never do that. Yeah, well, I should yeah, it because it's also a waste of time because then your editor is going to destroy it and totally yeah. change every part of it. But I think deep down, I was like, am I capable to write something mm -hmm. of that lens, of that caliber? And and then I got really into the neuroscience of it, like how visual shapes you, they shape your brain, the role of the artist could play in that visual world, the many changes we need to make at the society and how visuals could very much enable those the rise of AI and how visual critical thinking is actually going to be key in understanding that misinformation. My brain got really excited. I read the book, as you can see, the excitement rose. I was like, I found it so interesting. This is all the reasons I'm in. Um, and I wrote it. Penguin was my first choice. I think there's a thing in me where I was like, I didn't think I could get my first choice, uh, but it was totally my first choice. Um, I could not believe it that they um, believed in it. it so it was lit. It was literally the first publisher you approached, and they took it. Yeah, uh, wow. which you know is a ridiculous story. And I, but I, I must say also, I'm represented by Curtis Brown, which enabled that process. So this okay. is not me knocking on the door of my own. Is I have a publishing agent, Gordon Wallen Wise, will enable me to do this. So. Because uh, otherwise it will look like a completely random story, which it isn't. Um, but um, but uh, the truth is that it was my first choice. My entrepreneur, my editor, was a total dream come true because she's an incredibly smart woman. One of the first black editor um, at the Penguin Group, wanting to completely reshape how we approached essential topics like uh, the visual world, like visual thinking. Um, and, and also they are able to make topics like this mainstream. And, and again, back to our conversation about the sector, I want the importance and the role of the arts to be mainstream. I don't want it to be niche. Um, and I think a publisher like this is able to make it mainstream. It was incredibly challenging to do as a process. Um, we spoke about it earlier, but it is, I was giving birth as um, all the comments were coming in from my editors and as the company was scaling, um, and yeah, life was very full on as I was as as I did this. But um, I'm incredibly proud. I think it's always funny because I think it's happened to many authors. Would you have an idea for a second book now? Because because when you go so deep in, then you start getting really interested, and then you now have um, other ideas. So I'm doing a TED, and uh, not a TEDx, a TED on in March on visual prejudices, which has then was that basically been one of the topics that emerged from writing this book, that actually there was a second book um, that would be really interesting to write. So it's clearly an endless quest, um, an endless intellectual quest, but, but it, it's very much our values as a business. Um, and I'm excited for people to feel, I can connect with the visual language, I can discuss things visually, I can engage in this world, I can participate in it. Um, because so far you are made to feel that this is a language imposed on you and you can only be passive, but you, can, you can't really participate in it. Um, so I hope it enables people to feel they can participate in it. That's brilliant. I mean, one of the, one of the things I find myself often saying to my students um, is, you know, if, we're, if I'm taking them around a gallery, um, I will often say, look, go around and look on your own for 20 minutes and then we'll come back and we'll go through. And if there's anything that's caught any of your eyes, we'll, get, we'll return to it and you can talk about it. And and I I I've noticed that 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 people and this is observational of people in general, um, and I we're, we're, I'm sure that you've researched this or at least thought about it in your book. We can come to that. Um, you know, people. How long do people spend looking at a painting in a gallery? Typically, a, a, our culture is about ticking off and taking selfies in front of. So one of the things I say to them um, is, do any of you listen to like classical music? And one of them said, I said, who do you like? Vivaldi, Mozart. Uh, I said, well, how long is a Mozart symphony approximately? They say, well, 35 minutes. And I said, well, shouldn't you be looking at this painting for 35 minutes? You know, the artist has put as much time, very often they put as much time into creating that work and thinking about it as, say, a classical composer has into a time-based <laughs> form of, of, of artistic experience. And um, I, I, I practice what I preach. I, I, I will go into, I will go back to an exhibition if I can, and then just pick out two or three works and spend a lot of time with them. Uh, and, and there's this kind of, I often talk about an empty space between oneself and the 
and the work of art, which becomes a conversation with the artists. And I quite often say to my students if, who are often prejudiced about a certain kind of art, you know, um, if, if it's actually even more important if you go to like a new contemporary art show and it's difficult um, to, to, to stand there and think, what what is that? This artist hasn't made this for no reason. They have made this to communicate with me. So just think about what they're trying to actually say to you. Almost imagine yourself in conversation with them. So I just wondered to what extent those ideas of looking at art come into your book. Because I, you, you kindly sent me a proof. Thank you very much. But I've, I've, only, I've only just started reading. It's fascinating. I, I, um, I, <laughs> um, I think what you discuss is visual literacy. Now, we are taught to read at school and learn to read at school. Um, yeah. And I think assuming that you could just get things is not possible, especially because it lies on so many layers of privileges. If I think yeah. of my kids, like they would have been exposed to so much art that of course they're going to feel more comfortable. I feel, I had that conversation recently with one of my investors who said, why do people struggle to put themselves in uncomfortable places? Because that's obviously where um, a lot of the growth will happen. But I said, you know, you're confident, you're from the top universities in, in France, like you just have so many layers that made you feel, I can put myself in an uncomfortable situation, which then makes you okay to being comfortable because you've got this net and this confidence and everything that we know. So literacy is the same. And maybe for, maybe you remember, well, at least I remember, especially learning English as I had just arrived in the country, reading the first two pages of the FT and wanting to cry and not understanding a single word <laughs> like it just was so like overwhelming that I just did not understand what I was reading and and I feel that this is the same with the artistic language the visual language um we can't just assume that this can be understood and and also especially when we know that traditionally this is an education that was really given to your upper middle class and your upper class that there's a whole history in this country specifically that this the history of taste the history of the arts even the grand tour was dedicated to a type of people so if we know this um, historically then we know that most people was, were not exposed to it and we're also specifically made to feel that this was not for them so i feel that the way i look at it is rather than just assuming that they could get it i would encourage a visual literacy through for instance when i i tried with uh, my, my my first is four years old so i did a very um i mean low-end visual critical thinking course in his school for like a day but even like how the composition of the picture is structured how this is affected uh, how you feel where do your eyes wander um where does the scale affect so you look at different the same image in different scale like how does this affect the messaging of the image that you can there are ways in which to teach this um in the same way that there are ways to teach you how to read um so i feel it's i feel just coming back to basics and and making people feel let's just understand the many triggers this this wax and those visuals can transcend and then i can't wait for them to put themselves in uncomfortable places because i agree um you know the beauty of the sector is that you should specifically look for art that you don't like or at least makes you feel deeply uncomfortable because usually the answers lie right in why you're feeling uncomfortable so it's um but i but i feel you need a first step and that first step is making people feel that this is their language. It's not something that is talked to them. It's not something that they should just know and say really intellectual things straight away. But actually, it's a language that they can speak, and they are they are a very easy way to decode it before they step up to think. Actually, I love it, and I can't wait to dive in. Yeah, one of the essays I try to I encourage my students to read is 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 Pierre Bourdieu's Distinction, which is all about what you were saying about yeah. social privilege and cultural capital that some people are born with uh, and I you know I'm I, I totally agree with you and it, it worries me that we keep hearing about art history only now being taught in privileged schools I think there's a kind of gender there's a kind of inverse gender problem there because like my son uh, went to an all-boys school and, and it had a sister school next door and he was quite interested in the he was potentially interested in doing an art history A level and they didn't deliver it the boys school and they did at the girls school but they wouldn't let them come in and sit in on you know and that's why <clears throat> that's why most of I mean I think it's a good obviously on many ways this is a really good thing but like 90% of my students have always been women and and people say that's a bit strange as you've got the word business that we associate as a more max masculine word 
yeah. in the title. And especially because it's not represented in the power scheme after this of the sector. But I think it comes down, I think we have a perception issue as a sector. And I feel, I hope the coming years, um, we will organize ourselves to shift that perception. Because mm -hmm. the first perception issue is to think that this is only for a certain group of people. The second, I agree that it's just decorative and fluffy, which lands on the girls, you know, like because it, obviously anything innovative, deep and smart has to land on the boys. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's that thing of how do we shift that perception? How do we show? One thing I was doing with investors and VCs at the start of the company, I was taking through the National Gallery and showing them how innovation was fueled through the works, meaning when the industries were creating new pigments, Turner was using it. When the discovery of the optics was happening, Turner was using it in his paintings. Like it's the same across every single century. And art has always been part of innovation, has always drive, like was driving society forward and was driving all those conversations. So that's what I mean, it's a perception issue is we think of innovation and right now we think of AI and tech and science. Um, we don't think of the arts first and foremost. And so we need as a sector to go back onto what are the current daily priorities um, that everyone discusses and those topics. How do we embrace those? How do we push them forward and innovate in them, both in terms of uh, technically innovation, but also conceptual innovation? And um, because throughout history, as you know, we were very much side by side um, with all the other sectors that were innovating. Um, it was never in silo. But I think that perception has shifted over the past 50 years. And I think you see it with our current government where you know, you, you fo the focus is on tech, on science, on, on business. But uh, what's actually, and I was so happy that McKinsey supported that report back in December, but ironically, our sector is number two in the UK in terms of generating you know, um, added revenue and it's just as much as big as the food and beverage sector and doing as well as the hospitality sector and it's a very strong sector for the UK. Um, so it's really learning how do we promote this, how do we inform people of this, that it's not just um, us fluffy people on the corner, but actually not only this is something that benefits people, not just on the economical side and the well-being level, um, but on the second part, it's actually a really exciting sector. Like as an investor, this, this and what you said with our company, we're a fast growing company. My investors have made money from us. Like this is an exciting sector to be part of. It's not um, just something that you do because, you know, there's nothing else left and, and it's really nice and decorative. Um, so it's, that's what I mean by the perception issue. And I hope it changes through that, through new models through new uh, spokespeople and, and artists, it really shows that this is more than just that side note. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm thinking that, you know, there's so many models in the history of art that we that we study. Uh, you know, classical Athens is a good example of a, um, you know, so when I, if I'm teaching classical art to my students, ancient classical art and Greek art, I, I make a big point out of the fact that like a, when they're looking at a vase, a vase painting or a, pot, a wine pot, if you like, it, it's private art. It was made for an elite. We know it was made and used for an elite of aristocrats. So we have to bear in mind that mindset when we look at that kind of art. And yet Athens was filled with, you know, it was so important to them, the, pub, the public art, albeit as propaganda, if you like, of Athenian empire, but also of democracy and so on. So, um, you know, and you read so much in ancient art history about, um, about art being for the people. So Pliny, who is our main source for, for Greek art, he's, he, he certainly takes a position whereby, um, you know, when the Romans come along, we ourselves have made art private. We've, we put it in our houses and it's no longer for the public. He makes a big critique of that. And then of course we get the, uh, we get, the Republic of Florence, where, you know, Michelangelo's David was originally actually in a public space and now it's in a museum. I often say to my students, I can't, I, I don't like museums. Uh, when I, you know, the National Gallery you were talking about, I don't like the fact that there are these religious altarpieces that, that, that were originally in their proper context in a church where people would, wouldn't just sit there for 30 minutes and look at them, they'd, they'd actually engage with them spiritually. Uh, you know, in a certain kind of candlelight, if you like, it was a very different experience. So art history, of course, doesn't really look at that so much as um, as the work itself on the gallery wall and how to formally analyse it. That's, I think that's really interesting how we want um, certain walls to signify the value of this artefact, but actually um, that the context itself could be just as valuable. Um, I mean, that is spot on, probably a next podcast for you, a really difficult conversation on 
where do your artworks belong and where should they be? That is not me that's going to do this one, but I think it's a really interesting conversation. Hmm. I feel clearly I value context and I value everyday context. Um, and, and I will probably lean on the fact that therefore is the relationship with the context and the audience that also matters is that constant conversation with people that matters. Um, right. It's definitely different um, to the way we've been taught art. Um, and, but I, I think again, there's a place for everyone um, and there's a place for every discourse. We said about being uncomfortable and being in rooms where people don't agree. Um, but I feel, I think the place of the context is definitely what I think is the most interesting conversation right now, because obviously if you think of the British Museum or the places like context is being challenged. Um, and I think the study of context and visual context is really interesting. Um, probably you know the book, but not uh, today on that podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, and this is a um, uh, th this is a conversation that we're having all the time now. Uh, you know, where I teach, because obviously education is expected to to lead on these on these issues. Unfortunately, it very often just reacts to it, and I think the art world, unfortunately, isn't proactive very often in these kind of uh, you know, it takes something like uh, the Floyd uh killing to 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 wake people up and it, it's it's really sad that it takes things like that for that to happen but it sounds to me maureen as though you're trying to get people to think ahead you know we shouldn't need these things to happen uh before we actually think you know we're, we're human beings we're homo sapiens <laughs> you know we, we we should be thinking ahead of the game and leading the art world has always led discussions and debates in these social issues yeah, and I definitely don't want any guilt on anyone listening. Like we are conditioned a lot of the time, and that's a lot of the book. Like we are conditioned to think a certain way. Like sure. it takes time to literally think against yourself. That's one of my yeah. favorite sentences. There's a book in France on how to think against yourself. But <laughs> I think yes, my book is to help you to visually think against the visuals you see every day. Um, but that takes time to think against yourself because there's so much conditioning at stake. And of course, it's uncomfortable, and we all want to be liked, and we all want to be appreciated. And it's, um, I would definitely not have any form of guilt. Um, we've all been there trying to please and endorse something that actually many years back, we felt I should have said something very different. Um, like I mentioned, I think critical thinking takes time. Visual critical thinking is what we try and introduce and takes time. Um, so there's no guilt to have. It's a very natural human feeling. Yeah, and I think, I, I assume, but maybe wrongly, that your book is going to say something about the healing power of art in a world filled with commercial images. Yeah, well, I think it's, I mean, the thing is we know all of this, all the academics have already published endless mm. studies saying that the arts contributes to us, but the problem is we've parked it and, and we are very little exposed to it on a day-to-day -day basis, you know? I've already probably consumed 300 images that told me to be sexy. At no point did this images tell me anything else this morning. So it's it's really changing and shifting what do we first want to see as we wake up in the morning? And what do we want our streets and our cities to say? Like, do we want to be in that place which just commercial imagery or do we want more civic spaces where those conversations exist and they are guided by artists? Like, I think that's really the key conversations to be having now. Yeah, and I, I guess the fourth plinth was an example um, yeah. now some time ago of a, a really, really good positive response, uh, you know, making the public look at a work of art in, in a certain, imperialist yeah. colonial context yeah. that, with the yeah. national gallery behind it as well <laughs> you know i think yeah. the fourth plinth is a one was a wonderful idea um and, and and i guess that your your book can but also your work is is engaging with that kind of art world rather than if you like the art that goes into private collections and private houses i mean we do this too because i think actually who is collecting and the diversity of collectors as we know is changing and a lot of collectors want to support new ways of thinking. So ironically, a lot of the artists that we've supported have done incredibly well from exhibiting at Gagosian up to having recorded um, auctions. So it's it's ironic that I think it's benefited the art collecting and the investment side, um, because I think people see that that change is much needed. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I get that entirely. And uh, actually, you know, some of the most interesting minds that I engage with are actually private collectors, um, you know, and, and, and there's a kind of myth maybe that these people are just, it's, you know, buying art uh, to signify their wealth and cultural standing and so on. But that, that, there are some like that, obviously, but an awful lot of people are actually much more engaged in that, uh, much more philanthropic in their, potentially philanthropic in their outlook, I think. 
Yep, yeah. agreed. Agreed. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Maureen, we very much look forward to um, the publication of your book. And I, I, I mean, certainly from the pages I've already read, it's very unpretentious and filled with useful facts. And you, you've got an amazing memory for um, for statistics because I've heard you you've you've been quoting you know the. It's yeah, a if you yeah. give a sense, like you see the, the scale of the problem, it's much easier to remember it. Yeah, you visualize the $65 billion as opposed to sort of see the word. I think that's yeah. very important because, you know, you need to visualize how much money that actually is on how little it is compared to a day on the stock exchange, you know, which is another interesting thing about the value of art, the financial yeah. value of art compared to the cultural value. Anyway, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the uh, the listeners. Um, and I will um, I will give details about your forthcoming book, uh, in in the literature that goes with the that accompanies the podcast. So thank you very much, Marie, for giving up your time today, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.